All right, back in Romans 6 again tonight. We're working through this chapter here with Paul. I'll try to not be too long-winded, but these are glorious verses. (laughs) It's hard to know, okay, I don't need to say that. It's like, you need to say everything, Um, even though that's not the case. Romans 6, going to be in verses 12 to 14. There is a um, rough outline on the back if you want to follow along. Romans 6. We looked at last week, verses 1 to 11. There, Paul's arguing that we've been delivered from the dominion of sin. Um, He made that vital point. I think we need to continually remind ourselves of this, that we've not only been saved from the penalty of sin, Paul's been arguing that we've also been saved from the power of sin. Um, It's not our master anymore. We were formerly enslaved to sin, but now in Christ we've been set free. And the primary way he conveys this reality is he speaks of the believer's union with Christ. It's a glorious doctrine um, to continue to um, mine the depths of there. All of mankind comes into the world represented by Adam. We're united to him. We're enslaved to sin. We're dead in our transgressions uh, in him. Yet now in Christ, believers are represented by him. We've been united to Christ. Remember the language from last week. If they're in Romans 6, just look back at some of these verses we looked at. Verse 4, what does he say? We were buried with him by baptism. Verse 5, we've been united with him in a death like his. He goes on, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 6, our old self was crucified with him. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And that's just here in Romans 6. Paul has a profoundly rich doctrine of union with Christ. He um, in Ephesians 2, 6, maybe you remember this verse. Remember when he says that we have presently been raised up with him and we've been seated with him in the heavenly realms? I mean, there's a whole sermon on that. What does that mean? But presently, we are in Christ and living with him. And so a summary from last week, uh, maybe if you weren't here, just to recap, Paul argued in these first 11 verses that Christ died to sin. We died with Christ, therefore We also died to sin. Christ died to sin. We died with him. Therefore, we also died to sin. And so he has laid down the theology. He has laid down the doctrine. That is the foundation to where he now moves to applying that, really how it affects our everyday life of the believer. Go back to uh, verse 11. Um, Let me just begin there before we even jump into verse 12. He says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Well, we demonstrated that. He's arguing that we need to consider that because we are dead to sin. We are dead to sin and we are alive to God. Therefore, think this way. You need to align your mind and your heart with the reality of who you are in Christ. You are dead to sin. You are alive to him. We continually need to be shaping our minds to think this way, and I, I mentioned this. This is maybe because I'm a nerd, but that was the first imperative in the book of Romans. It's almost as if Paul has been building all this theology, and you know he's got a lot of applications. You know, towards the end, like chapter 12, hey, you got to do this, you got to do that. But it's almost like he's like so excited about the theology. He's like, okay, in case you missed it, you got to do this, right? Consider yourselves dead to sin. And so I concluded last week with with this thought. I said, if we want to experientially in day-to-day life be free from the power of sin, 
then we must daily consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. This is a daily conflict that we are in. The battle for holiness begins with our minds. We need to correct the way we think. And so the three verses we're going to look at tonight, 12, 13, and 14, really are further expounding on that verse. What what does it mean to consider ourselves dead to sin? How do we think through being alive to God? And so I want to walk through these verses and then hopefully uh, spend some time with some application there um, that you would see on your notes. Structurally, here's what Paul does. Okay, So here's where he's going. He's going to give us two negative imperatives. Okay, So two negative commands. Don't do this. Okay, Two negative commands, and then he's going to give us one positive. Okay, So don't do these two things. Instead, do this. And then in verse 14, he's going to conclude with this amazing uh, doctrinal reason as to why we can obey those three commands. Does that make sense? So two negative commands, one positive, and then a, another doctrinal reason as to why this is all possible. So let's start. Verse 12. Verse 12, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Let not sin reign. The language throughout this section is one of, I kind of picture like knights and castles, okay? I think it's because I'm a boy, but I played with knights and castles. I still have my Lego castle chess set. It's amazing, okay? But I love the castles and the knights and all this stuff, you know, soldiers and weapons, and I think that's what Paul is actually building on here. That's kind of an illustration. Again, building on that theology of the last section, he says we're no longer under the domain of sin. Sin is no longer our master, yet sin will seek to regain its power. You know, think of that deposed king, right, who he just got kicked off his throne. He's not happy being off the throne. He's going to start a revolution, okay? That is what sin is doing. He is seeking to regain authority. So therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal body. I think it's a somewhat puzzling phrase. What is he doing there in mortal body? But I think in context, it's actually clear what Paul is saying here. He's saying that we still live in a body. We still have a body, actually probably a better way to say it, that is under the influence of this age. Okay? We still are affected by our old union with Adam. Our bodies are still under the curse. Yet, we've been raised to walk in newness of life. Both are true. Our persons are still affected by sin. Maybe you remember uh, Jeremiah 17, 9. It's one of my favorite verses for, like, self-counsel. Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. So I just know going into anything, it's like, I could be wrong, <laughs> okay? I think our heart is still, in some sense, sick. If you remember Jeremiah 31 and the promise of the new covenant, the Lord promises that he will deal with the heart, okay? That the Holy Spirit will work in our heart. It's not just external, it's actually internal, but there's still a sense in which our heart is still sick, that we are not free from the presence of sin, though we are free from its power. I think even as Christians, we need to be honest with this. I don't know about you guys, but there are actually moments where we're not only tempted, but where we're not only tempted to sin, we actually desire to carry out the sin, right? I don't know about you guys, but I'm not only sometimes tempted to be angry, I actually want to lash out in anger, right? We still sometimes desire to live in that sin. And that's why Paul is warning us, don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its 
passions. Galatians 5, we mentioned last week, our sinful flesh is dying, but it's still active. There's a warfare in every believer between the sinful flesh which remains and the work of the Holy Spirit on our hearts who is changing our desires. And here in Romans 6, Paul is warning us about that sin nature which is never wholly mortified in this life. The power of sin has been defeated. The presence of sin still remains. It still affects us. We still deal with passions. Oftentimes in uh, the ESV, they'll translate this word, uh, you see here, as passions as, as lust or desires, oftentimes, um, you know, sexual sin. But I think real, real here, um, really, Paul is just using it, condemning any and all forms of sinful desires. He's not just saying sexual sin. I think in our culture, we, we do need to speak to that, or we're in a hypersexualized culture, but any sinful desire. He's saying all of this is wrong. Any type of lust, any type of coveting, any type of craving, any want contrary to God's will. In fact, the last time Paul has used the words body and desire together, is Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 24. And I think as you guys know, Romans 1 is this extensive list of sin. Romans 1 is one of those passages where it's easy to read and go, wow, the world is really jacked up. They are so messed up out there. Have you read this passage? But I think here in Romans 6, Paul is calling us back to Romans 1, not just to say you're messed up, but we're messed up. That the sins of Romans 1 are not just out there, they're actually also in here. And we need to deal with those. I don't know about you guys, but just listen to these. And you guys have a struggle with any of these? Unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, strife, gossip, slander, violence, arrogance. He says they're foolish, they're faithless, they're heartless, they're ruthless, disobedient to parents. Those are still our besetting sins. I trust that they no longer dominate our lives, perhaps as they did, but even now we still struggle with these same sins. And Paul is arguing here in Romans 6, you are no longer enslaved to those sins. You have died to sin. You are alive in Christ. So therefore, don't let sin reign. Sin is not your king. Jesus is your king. He is your master. Obey him. Verse 12, sin must not reign. Look at verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but... Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Here Paul is using the same verb, it's the same word, in a negative and also in a positive manner. Okay, so don't do this. Don't present your members to do this, but instead present your members to do this. I can still remember in third grade. I, have, I don't have a great memory, but I still remember this. In third grade we went to, is for my sister's eighth grade trip, we went to Washington, D.C., and we visited the um, Arlington National Cemetery. It was great. It's really, really cool. In particular, uh, seeing the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Has anyone else been there? Oh, okay. Wow, quite a few. Okay. Okay, so you know. I don't have to spend tons of time in this illustration. Um, were you guys there for the changing of the guard? Okay. Changing the guard is legit, right? Like, like, it's like, wow, these guys don't mess around. They know what they're doing. But you have there, so you have one guy marching, you know, this way, and he comes back. The sergeant comes out, you know, with the new guard. What the sergeant will do is actually inspect the new guard coming on, right? You know, he's looking them up and down. And it's just like they're just like robots. It's, go watch it on YouTube. It's really cool. Um, 
you know, he's checking his uniform to make sure there's no lint or anything like that. You know, the guy takes out his, um, I think it's an M14, and he's like, okay, this is clean, all this stuff. The soldier's presenting himself to the, to the sergeant. He's standing at attention, and he's saying, here's me and the weapon that I have. Am I fit for service? And I think that's perhaps a similar picture to what Paul is describing here. He says, don't present your members to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. In the ESV, they have it here, instruments. Everywhere else, um, it, it's more consistently translated weapons, okay? It's the um, Greek word hoplon. Haven't you guys heard of a hoplite? It's a Greek foot soldier. It's the same word, okay? This is, like I said, military language. This is warfare language, which I think automatically leads into how we think about the Christian life. It's not a cakewalk. It's actually warfare, even just by the language that Paul uses. But here's what he says. Don't present your members to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. He's not just talking about our physical body. Um, he's speaking of what makes up a person, all of our faculties. He's not saying, hey, you know, you can lust in your heart all you want. Just make sure you don't act it out. No, he's saying none of that. Don't present your body and don't present your heart to do these deeds of unrighteousness. After all, the reason we sin with our mouth and say sinful things is because out of the heart the mouth speaks. We sin in our actions because, as James says, our passions are at war within us. Paul's concerned with the whole person, not just external obedience. Sin is no longer your master. Sin is no longer your commander. Therefore, don't stand at attention and offer yourself to serve sin. You could say that the Christian is no longer a soldier in sin's army. On the contrary, look back at verse 13. So don't present your members to do this. Present yourselves, on the contrary, to God. Positively, do this. As those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. See, in the Christian life, we need to do both simultaneously. Negatively, we, we put off the flesh. We put off the old man. We put to death the deeds of sin. And at the same time we're doing that, we're putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. We must seek to present our members to God in each and every aspect of our lives. And what's the reason that he gives? As those who have been brought from death to life. As Christians, we have been brought back from death to life. Christ is the one who did it. How much more should we then serve him? We owe him everything. Again, I never planned this with the songs, but all I have is Christ. <laughs> so serve him. He's our new master. He is the king whom we obey. In Christ, we can use all of our faculties for his cause. Our mind, our will, our affections, our thoughts, our words, our deeds. All of these can, and I think this is important, all of these can be used for Christ. And I think this text is clear that not only can they, they must be. We need to set our mind, will, and affections, our, our thoughts, our deeds to work for Christ, set faith to work, what does he say, as weapons for righteousness. And so Paul gives us three commands, verses 12 and 13, and then verse 14, he gives us the underlying reason for why we're able to do these things. I just have to tell you, this is an amazing verse, that I'm not going to be able to spend as much time on it as I 
would wish. <laughs> Paul says, for sin will have no dominion over you. He's already written extensively that we're no longer under the dominion of sin. Okay? He's already said that. You're, you're not under the dominion of sin. Well, here he furthers the argument, and he says, yes, presently you're not under the, the dominion of sin, and you never will be ever again. Sin will no longer have dominion over you, over the believer, ever. You see, we can obey the commands of these previous verses now because sin is not reigning over us. And we can always obey these verses because sin will never reign over us again. But how do we know we're freed from the power of sin? How can the believer know for certain that sin will never be the king again? How, will we, how can we not live in a spirit of fear? What's the reason Paul gives here? Look at what he says. Since, or you could just say for, for you are not under law, but under grace. I can still remember reading John Owen's comments in The Mortification of Sin and on this verse, and it just hit me like a freight train. And I just had to sit there for a minute and just tease out the implications of this. And I hope to do that with the time I have left. What is he saying here? You're not under law, but you're under grace. We've been talking about this reign of sin. Why does Paul switch all of a sudden to law? We might expect, if we've been reading Romans in context, um, or maybe just this passage, Romans 6, why, why does he switch to law? Shouldn't he say, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under sin, but under grace? What's going on here? What's he doing? We haven't been in all of Romans, but if we were back in Romans 2, especially chapter 3, it's not unusual for Paul to bring up law here. Paul's been talking about the Mosaic law in Romans actually a lot, okay? This is not as odd or abrupt as you may think at first, it's, especially here in Romans. I think Paul's trying to show how law and sin relate. How do these things work together? How does the Mosaic law, let's say in Romans 7, the law is not sin, but how do they relate? Listen to Romans 3.20. Paul says that through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. The Mosaic law in the Old Testament made sin explicit. Okay, it's like if you go on YouTube and you have options, you know, to watch it in like 144 pixels or like 4K. The law makes it 4K. The law makes sin very, very clear. HD, IMAX. The sin was there but the law makes it clear. Does that make sense? That's what the law does. Romans 5.20 says that the law was added to increase the trespass. Romans 4.15 says that the law brings God's wrath. 2 Corinthians 3.6 says that the letter of the law kills. The law reveals our guilt. The law brings condemnation. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56, I think Paul brings all of this together. Listen to what he says. The power of sin is the law. The power of sin is the law. The law causes us to be captive to sin and death. Therefore, it's through the law that sin has power over us. You could say that being under the law means that we are under sin, or just flip it. Being under sin means that we are under the law. But, 
if you're thinking with me here, Paul says in Romans 6, we've been set free from the power of sin. Well, the power of sin is the law. Therefore, that means what? We must have been set free from the law, right? If sin gets its power from the law and we are free from the power of sin, we must be free from the law. Sin will never reign over us because we're no longer under that which gave sin its power and bite, the law. Well, how did this happen? How are we freed from the law and sin? Quite simply, the gospel. That's how we've been set free, the work of Christ. Listen to this. It's an amazing passage, Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, in God's sovereignty, in his providence, the exact right moment of time had come. God sent forth his son, born of woman, listen to this, born under the law. Why? Verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. You could say it simply like this. Christ not only died for us, he also lived for us. He lived the perfect life of obedience that you and I could not. He not only died in our place, he lived in our place. And through his work, his life, and his death, that is how we are set free from the tyranny of the law of sin and death. And so Paul is bringing all of this together here in Romans 6. He's saying, rather than being united to and represented by Adam, believers are now united to and represented by Christ. Whereas formerly we were dead in our sins, now we are alive in him. Rather than being slaves of unrighteousness, he's going to say in verse 17, now we are slaves of righteousness. And rather than being under the power of sin through the law, we are under the power of grace through Christ. Now maybe at this point you're going, okay, I get it. Caleb just gets excited about the Bible and I don't really know what he was just saying. <laughs> or, or maybe you're saying, okay, yeah, that's cool. I see how those verses fit together. But maybe you're asking this really good question. So what? Like, okay, I'm not under the law, but I'm under grace. Like, what does that mean for me? That's actually a good question. Like, God doesn't just give us his word just so we'd go, wow, that's really neat. It's to change us, right? So, so what? What do we do with this passage? How does it impact us? At this point, I'm going to say something that I think is very bold. Maybe it isn't. I don't know. Maybe it isn't. But if it is and you don't like it, I didn't come up with it. It was from a veteran pastor who's in his 70s who lives on the other side of the country. So blame him if you get mad. The law should never be used to empower Christian obedience. Let me say that again. The law should never be used to empower the Christian life. I'm only 25. People think, some, I don't know, sometimes people say I'm really young. Sometimes people say I'm really old. I don't know what I look like. But, you know, I've been reading the Bible for maybe, you know, 10 years, let's just say. Okay? So some of you guys have got 40 years on me. You've been studying the Bible for 50 years. I have never found this verse in the Bible. Through the law comes a righteous life of grace-filled obedience. I haven't, I haven't found that verse. I don't know. If, if you guys have, please let me know because this changes my whole sermon. Okay? But I have never found that verse. It's because it's not in the Bible. You see, the law doesn't provide any power to obey. Remember all those verses I just read? What does it say? The law kills. 
The law brings wrath. The law is the power of sin. The law brings knowledge of sin. The law reveals what we're supposed to do, but it doesn't provide the means to actually do it. See, this is how this verse, verse 14, you are not under law but under grace, has profound implications on the Christian life. Every single day of the rest of your life could change from Romans 6.14. Because practically, what empowers us to obey is grace. Grace is what empowers us. Grace is not just God's kindness or his niceness to us or God just feels lovey-dovey towards me. Grace is God's omnipotent power on display in you, both to save and sanctify. That's really important. Both to save and sanctify. Galatians is all about that. You know, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by works of the, of the flesh? No. Because the gospel is sufficient for life and godliness. To save you and to sustain you. To save and sanctify. And so if we're fighting sin simply with the weapon of, I know I shouldn't do this. I should not lash out in anger. I shouldn't desire this. We're going to fall into sin. If we're just sitting there beating over our heads with the law, we're going to fall. In fact, I would argue we're using the law incorrectly if we're using it as the source of power in the Christian life. God didn't design it to do that. He designed it to condemn I don't know about you guys, but for me, I know what sin is. I know I shouldn't do this, or I know I shouldn't think that. Now, maybe with a young believer, we go to the Word, and they don't see that this is sin, and we show them that. But generally speaking, that's not our problem. Generally speaking, our problem is we know the right thing to do. We just don't do it. <laughs> Experientially, we're like the man in Romans 7.15, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate sin. And so what do we do? How do we fight the battle for holiness? A continual application of grace. We continually go to the Lord. Paul's going to expand on this in the verses that follow, but we plead with the Lord to work in our hearts. We go to him. We say, Lord, I know you have worked in my heart. Please help me to hate sin more. Please help me to grow in this way, help me to love you and desire to serve you. By your spirit, Lord, help me to put to death the desires of the flesh. We fight sin not simply by leaning on the gospel, but by throwing ourselves completely on the gospel. We need the gospel of grace. It's funny, I feel like Mark's reading my notes before I talk because I also was going to go to Titus 2, 11 to 12 like he did this morning in equipping hour. The gospel is God's grace. That is what empowers us. Titus 2, 11 to 12 says this, for the grace of God has appeared. God has brought salvation in and through the person of Jesus Christ. He has come. What is he doing? Bringing salvation for all people. But listen to this. Keep that verse. Grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness. What's training us? The grace of God. So what's training us to obey and renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age is not the law. The gospel is what's training us. So we never move on from the gospel. We fight sin with the grace, with the power of the gospel. We're not under law, 
we're under grace. It is an amazing thought. I wanted to end, because I'm already running out of time, I wanted to end just leaning into these commands here that Paul gives. That's kind of the, the second part of your notes there. How do we do this? Okay, I get it. That, that's profound, but how do I do this practically? I'd even go back a step further. Why should we do this? Right? Okay, I understand, um, you know, we need to talk about how practically, but, but why? What are some motivations? Well, first, obedience, right? God's word calls us to do this. These are imperatives. These are commands. We seek to honor and obey the Lord. Also, because we want to glorify God. God is glorified when, um, you know, by the power of his spirit, we're obeying. Let me just point out another one before we get to the how. Let me just suggest another reason for why we should do this with a question. Do you care about the condition and well-being of your spiritual life? Do you care about your day-to-day walk with the Lord? Many of the points, if not all, um, of the points that follow, like I mentioned earlier, are just from John Owen. He's been very helpful um, in my own life, even just recently. He says this, the vigor, the power, and the comfort of our spiritual life depends on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. So in other words, another motivation as to why you want to obey these commands is do you want peace in your life? Mark was talking about peace this morning. The God of peace. Well, do you want experientially the Holy Spirit to testify that we are his children, as Romans 8 says? Well, then it depends on living this out. It depends on putting to death the deeds of the flesh, not presenting our members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but to God. Do you want power? Do you want strength? Do you want comfort? You see, the problem is if we continue in sin, sin will blind us. Sin confuses us. It dulls us to the wonder of grace. If you want to lose your assurance of salvation, just sin. (laughs) That's what happens. Sin brings ruin, brings distress in the Christian life. Therefore, put to death the deeds of the flesh. How do we do this? Let me quickly conclude. Four considerations. Four considerations from Romans 6.13. First, negatively. Negatively, how do we not present our members to sin as weapons for unrighteousness? I'm going to take Jesus' words in Matthew 26.41 and make two simple points. You know this verse. Jesus says to his disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Number one, watch. Watch. Be proactively at the ready. Be on guard. Present your members, every faculty of your being, every single part of you, present it as an ever-vigilant soldier ready to serve the Lord and to watch out against the corruptions of sin. Not only externally, right? That means maybe we need to not go to this certain place or listen to this type of music or have this app on our phones. We get that. But also internally. Consider your heart. What causes these sinful desires to come forth? Watch your paths and examine where temptation and sin comes from. Owen writes this, Consider what ways, what companies, what opportunities, what studies, what businesses, what conditions, 
have at any time usually give advantage to your distempers. There's an old-fashioned word for diseases. He's talking about sin. Consider what things bring about sin. Think about these things and set yourself heedfully against them all. Men will do this with respect to their bodily sicknesses. Are the things of the soul of less importance? Hear this. Know that he who dares to dally with occasions of sin will dare to sin. He that will venture unto wickedness will venture upon wickedness. He's saying if you place yourself in that situation, you're not dumb. You know what's going to happen. Don't dally with sin. Keep a close guard on the friends you keep, the entertainment you consume, the places you go. If these lead you into temptation, maybe we need to do what Jesus says, pluck them out and cut them off. Be diligent at the watch. Number two, pray. Number two, pray. I mean, there's so many ways we could apply this. There are so many things we can pray for. We can pray for strength in temptation. Lord, help me to not fall. We can pray for grace that we would not even enter into temptation in the first place. That's what the Lord says there in Matthew 26. We can pray that we would always have the cross fixed on our minds, that we would understand the agony of what our Lord went through. Pray. We can also pray that we would have a greater hatred of sin. If you're anything like me, I mean, I think that's our problem, is we are too okay with little sins. Thomas Brooks, he's another one of my favorites says this, one of Satan's devices is to present sin as less than it is. Ah, says Satan, it is but a little pride, a little worldliness, a little uncleanness, a little drunkenness. For the love of one little sin, some have lost God and their souls forever. Hear this, many times small sins are more dangerous. Great sins startle the soul and awaken it to repentance, but little ones breed and work secretly until they trample the soul. Sin grows by degrees until you cannot prevail over it. And he ends with a prayer. Oh, that God would open the eyes of a sinner to see the horrid vileness of sin. That's what we need. Because generally speaking, hey, yeah, we're not murdering people, but we're just harboring anger in our heart. And that's the problem. Sin grows by degrees until you cannot prevail over it. So watch and pray. That's negatively. What do we do? Positively. How do we present our members to God as weapons for righteousness? I would just say, especially here, this is where faith needs to be active. Faith is not just some passive thing that we have. It's incredibly active. We need to live lives full of faith day to day. Use your faith. Number one, expect power. If we've been set free from the power of sin, we're under the power of grace, then expect the power of grace in your life. Eagerly expect it. By faith, preach to yourself that I need to trust and expect that God, through the working of the Holy Spirit, will deliver me. He will enable you to have power over sin and temptation. Christ is at work in our hearts. He's changing our desires, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So therefore, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God and eagerly expect that God's going to give you everything you need to please him. One of my favorite verses, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape. 
So if we're left in our own power, we're doomed. But if we cling to the Lord and we expect grace to work in our lives, we can present ourselves to God as um, weapons for righteousness. Number two, endeavor to obey. So we need to expect power. We also need to endeavor to obey. As we expect power, place yourself in paths of obedience. So don't expect power and then go to that place that causes you to stumble. Get away from there. Seek to obey. Turn away. So to the Spirit and not to the flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Meditate on and seek to live out the, the fruit of the Spirit. Proactively fill your time with the Word. Meditate on its riches. Pray without ceasing throughout the day. I don't think what Paul is saying there is we just constantly are just praying all the time. But something happens, pray about it. And I can't tell you how many times I've, I'm not great at this, but sometimes you see something new in the Bible and it's amazing. Pray and thank the Lord. Spend much time with other believers for the purpose of building one another up. Don't only expect the power of grace. Place yourself in the paths where the power of grace can work. I've gone long. I need to conclude. Since we are dead to sin and alive to God, as verses 1 to 10 say, let us strive also to die to sin and live to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage. Lord, it is so rich. It is profound. Um, even in going over the time I'm supposed to have, we cannot expound upon it fully. Lord, I pray that these verses would be fixed in our hearts. They'd be fixed in our minds. Um, Lord, that we would not seek to live the Christian life by the law. Lord, that we would ever and always go to grace, that we would run to the gospel for the source of power in our Christian life to obey you and to please you and to glorify you. We ask this in your name. Amen.